I'm Peter. I usually am teaching the college students on Wednesday nights. And uh, on Sunday mornings, I go up to Calvert Christian Ore Valley. This is the new church plant from, from this church. And it's been, a, it's been a blessing to be up there, and it's been really awesome. I do thank you guys again for all your prayers and support. Um, tonight, uh, since uh, I get the opportunity to be with you guys, I thought it'd be cool to share with you one of um, the most life-changing verses in the Bible for me. So this is, this is a, a verse in the Bible that really just, it, it immediately gripped me in a very cool and beautiful and powerful way, and it changed my life. It literally changed the dynamic of my relationship with God and the way that I was living. And uh, ever since then, I've been living in response to this verse and always been trying to go back to it. Um, so I'll read the verse to you guys. We'll pray, and then uh, I'll explain it. The verse that we're going to be studying in depth tonight is 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31, where the Apostle Paul says, Therefore, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that we could be here tonight, that we can study your word, that we can uh, hopefully draw closer to you as a result. I pray that your spirit would speak to us, that we would be um, renewed in our minds and our thoughts and our hearts towards you. Lord, please give us receptive hearts to desire your glory above all else. And in your name, amen. So the time that I, I read this verse, I mean, I'd heard it before in church, and, uh, but the time in my life when it really hit me, when I really understood what this verse meant, um, as I was coming out of the Marine Corps, I, I served from 2008 to 2012 in the Marines, and I was struggling with uh, sexual sin in my life. And I had been struggling with it since I was 13 years old. I didn't really know what to do about it. Um, I would have, you know, seasons where I wouldn't uh, struggle, but then I would have seasons where I would bail in some pretty horrible ways. And all the while, as a Christian, as a believer in God, and uh, that filled my life with shame and regret. Um, it made it hard for me to be in church culture and community because I always felt like I was the only one who couldn't get this Christian walk just right. And so um, during this time, I, I, I went out to Afghanistan. I did a seven-month tour. I came back. And uh, during that time, I didn't struggle with sexual sin at all because there was nothing to struggle with. And uh, I came back, and I immediately started falling again. I, just, I realized I was like, man, I need to do something about this. I need to do something about this. I need to change. And then something else happened to me. I, I, I read about a guy in the Bible named Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar was a guy in the Bible who was uh, the emperor. He was the leader, the ruler of the most powerful nation um, on earth at that time, the Babylonian Empire. And God, at some point, makes almost like a threat to him. He says, Nebuchadnezzar, you're king, that's great, but I made you king, and never forget that. I am God, and you need to worship me and give me all the glory. And Nebuchadnezzar is like, okay, right on, God. And for a year and a half, he doesn't give in to pride. But then after a year and a half, he's walking through the temple, and he's just bubbling up with all this arrogance and, and, and frustration. And he just says, this is not Babylon that I have built. And immediately, God strikes him, and he becomes, it says that he loses his sanity, and he becomes like a, like a wild animal for seven seasons. And then God restores his sanity. And when I was reading that story, I realized something. The amount of time you go between sinning doesn't make you free. 
Um, Nebuchadnezzar went a year and a half without sinning, and yet he wasn't free from his sin. It was always right there in his heart, bubbling up beneath the surface, just ready to come out. And I realized that no matter how much time I spent away from my sin, my heart was deceitful and wicked above all things. I still wanted, I still craved the things of this earth more than anything else, and nothing in my heart was changing. And so I realized just how desperate my situation was, because not only could I not change my outward, no matter how hard I tried, but I was absolutely powerless to change my inward. And so I started pursuing and seeking God in a new and refreshed way, and um, I started to go onto our site, uh, because at the time I was living in North Carolina, and there was only one pastor I knew of who spoke about sexual sin, and that was Pastor Bo. And so I began to listen to teachings that he had given on the subject, and I uh, underwent a 60-day Bible study called the Way of Purity class. And it was massively revolutionary for me, but the main thing that hit me was lesson one of the study. And lesson one of the study revolved around 1 Corinthians 10.31, your motive. So the first lesson didn't say, how are we going to get free? Let's look at some practical steps. Like, what are we going to do? The first step was simply, why do you want to be free? Why do you want to be free? And I gave all my answers. I wrote them down. I was like, man, I want to be free because I want to be a good husband one day. It's because I want to be a good Christian. Um, it's because I'm, I'm worried about what other people think about me. Um, because I know that the, the sexual sin is very depraved before God, and I don't want to commit it anymore, and all these other reasons. But I realized that all those reasons were surrounded around my well-being. And none of them had anything to do with the glory of God. And what this lesson did is it says, unless you have a motivation to glorify God, you are not on the same page that God is. And so even if you get free, you won't be honoring him. And it shook me because I never had anyone say something like that to me. I grew up in the church and I assumed that all God wanted from us was outward obedience. And so I lived my life like that. I lived my life trying to exemplify outward obedience. I knew how to come to church and act a particular way. I knew how to uh, behave in a way that people would think that I was godly. Um, growing up in, that, in this environment, I learned how to be a hypocrite, to put it another way. And what I saw was that, for the first time, God doesn't want outward obedience. He wants your heart. It says in Isaiah, rend your heart, not your garments. Right? Don't, don't just do outward obeisance to God. Make sure that your heart shifts in his presence. And I realized that everything in my life, not just my desire to get free from sexual sin, but everything in my life was motivated by self. I was living for myself in every area of my life. The job that I wanted, the marriage that I craved, right? Everything I was doing was motivated by my own self-interests and desires. And this passage caught me up short because Paul says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Right? Could you think of anything more mundane than eating and drinking? Right? Paul specifically pulls out two of the most mundane and uninteresting activities that you have on a daily basis. And he says, do even this to the glory of God. Not just go to church for the glory of God. Not just pray for the glory of God. Not just read your Bible for the glory of God. Not just worship for the glory of God. Eat and drink to the glory of God. Let your whole life 
be for the ultimate endeavor of honoring and glorifying your Father in heaven. That, it shook me because I realized I hadn't been doing that at all. Even my good, righteous intents were motivated by selfish interests. I realized just how wicked I was in that moment. But in order to understand this idea of glorifying God, I had to understand a couple of things. Number one, I had to understand what does it mean to glorify God? Because when you grow up in the church, like I did, what you realize very quickly is that people use a lot of words that they don't actually know what they mean. And after a while of being in the church, you feel like an idiot if you say it, right? So I, you know, I was in the church and I was like, man, I don't know what glory means, but everyone uses it, so I'm going to just say it, you know? Like, man, God is glorious, right? And I would say stuff like that. I had no clue what it meant. But I was like, man, God is so glorious, man. I want to glorify God. Yeah, glory of the Lord. It's awesome. You know, but it, I had no idea really what it meant. And I realized that, but this is an aside, but I realized that that was applicable to all avenues of my walk with God. I didn't even know things as simple as, why do you pray? How do you pray? Why should you pray? I didn't know about the Bible. I didn't know the books in the Bible. I didn't, I didn't know a lot of things that I was pretending like I knew. But glory was an important one. So just in case there are people out there who don't know what glory is, like myself at that age, um, I'll give you guys a quick definition. So what glory is, is glory is simply beauty, excellency, majesty, all those are synonyms for glory. It just means someone's worth or weight. That's what it's talking about. So to glorify something is to make it look beautiful, honorable, excellent, majestic, right? That's what it means. So what Paul is saying is that everything you do should be for the purpose of making God look glorious, right? Everything you do should be for the purpose of making God look glorious. And when I understood that, I realized, once again, that's not been my heart's cry. Everything that I do is to make me look better, not God. And sometimes I even use God to make myself look better. I come to church and I do righteous things so that people look at me better. Even Martin Luther, who was one of the people most responsible for the Reformation in the church, he, was once, he once talked about that. And people question him about his righteousness and holiness. He says, man, like, before I became a monk, before I became a Christian, I used to do everything for my own self-interest. I used to eat and drink, and I used to gamble, and I used to have, have illicit sexual relationships and all this other stuff, and I did it all for me because that's what I wanted. And he says, but now that I'm a Christian, I see I still do everything for me. Yes, I go to church, but I go to church so I may be seen by others. Yes, I give to the poor, but it's so I could look down my nose at people who don't give as much. Yes, I read my Bible, that's so I could be intellectually superior to those who don't know as much as I do. Right? He realized that there was a root of pride and arrogance in him that could not be unrooted. He did everything for self-interest. And here's the ultimate question. If your selfishness is what's been killing you all along, how can your selfishness be the solution to your problems? Right? So I wanted to get free, I wanted to move on, but I was doing it with the same root that had dragged me in to my sin issue in the first place, and I realized that that was folly. The second obstacle I had to get over was the idea of God being an egomaniac, a megalomaniac, meaning that if I ran into someone and I said, hey, what is your desire, for, your ultimate desire for everybody around you? And they said, my ultimate desire for everybody around me is to make me look good. 
That's what I want. In fact, I tell my kids, kids, whether you eat or drink, do all things to make me look better. Right? And that's what I do. I, I just say that all the time. And, and when you think about it, it's, just, it's really crazy. Let me just read you guys a couple passages that kind of that made me see this, this side of God that I was like, I don't really like that. The first one is Judges 7, verse 2. This is at a time where Israel's in captivity. Right? They're in captivity, and they're raising up a guy named Gideon to lead an army against the Midianites to set them free. And God looks at this army, and this is what he says to Gideon. Listen very closely. Judges 7, verse 2. The Lord said to Gideon, The people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into your hands, lest Israel claim glory for itself against me, saying, My own hand has saved me. From there, God goes on a uh, little journey to winnow out Gideon's forces till he ends up with only 300 men. And look at God's reasoning. He says, I'm not going to let you guys win. Because if you win, I don't receive any glory. I don't look good for you winning. If you guys win, you look good. And I don't like that. Right? I need to look good. I need to be raised high, not you. Right? Here's the next one. Ezekiel 36, verse 21 through 22. God is speaking to his people who are in captivity. He's saying, I'm going to bring you back to the land. I'm going to draw you back. We're going to have a new covenant, a new relationship. It's going to be awesome. But listen to his reasoning. But I had concern... For my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations wherever they went. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. So God's saying, why am I saving you? For me. It's not for you. Don't think it's for you. It's for me. I'm saving you for my glory to be raised high. And I could go on and on with passages in the Bible that say this exact same thing. In, uh, in Jeremiah, I'm sorry, Isaiah 42, God literally says, I do not share my glory with anyone else. In Psalm 115, they say, not unto us, not unto us, Lord God, but unto your name give glory. Right? God is all about honoring himself. In fact, the largest book in your Bible is a book of praises to God. It's the book of Psalms, 150 chapters all dedicated to praising God. Now, if I wrote a book, an autobiography, and the largest section smack dab in the middle of it was all praise songs written to me, you guys would think I was a bit arrogant. And so I would looked at this and I said, if it's wrong for me to be arrogant, why is it right for God to be like this? This seems very wrong to me. It seems very off. And it put me off towards God. There are many people, by the way, um, in our world today that are very put off to God's seeming arrogance. Many people say, I can't go after God. He's a, he's a megalomaniac, man. He's, he's just all about himself. I mean, how could God say that I'm wrong to live for myself, but he lives for himself all the time? Now, there's a simple answer to that, and there's a more complex, more beautiful answer to that. The simple answer to that is, well, God can do that because he's God. He can do what he wants, right? God, there's no one above God. He created the universe. You create your own, your own universe, you can make the rules. But you didn't create this one. God did. The world doesn't revolve around you. It revolves around God. So you got to do what he says. That's a simple answer. A lot of people won't be satisfied with that answer. So I'll give you guys a little bit better one, okay? The better answer is because God is the most satisfying, beautiful, glorious, pleasurable, joyous being in the entire universe and the benefit of the universe is only magnified in his glory. This is what I mean by that. 
if God chose to glorify anything outside of himself, he would be pointing us and everyone around us to a source that could never satisfy their souls. This is Ecclesiastes 3, verse 11. Also, God has put eternity in our hearts. I mean, that God has put an eternal hole inside of us. He has, he has put something in us because we were created in the image and likeness of God. That's what it says in the book of Genesis. A lot of people struggle with what that means, but it's very simple. If someone makes something in their image and likeness, they're making it with a purpose, correct? Right? If you look at the, the Lincoln Memorial, is my favorite example. If you look at the Lincoln Memorial, I'm not supposed to look at the Lincoln Memorial and be like, oh man, like I think Lincoln was 20 feet tall and made out of marble. That's not what I'm supposed to get from the Lincoln Memorial. I'm supposed to look at the Lincoln Memorial and be like, oh, like just like marble, Lincoln had a very tough, hard presidency, and he was a hard man as a result. But instead of wearing a war suit with a sword drawn, he's wearing a suit and he's seated, showing that he sought diplomacy first. He's also larger than life because his presidency was larger than life. You see, by staring at the image bearer of Lincoln, I see his glory. You guys get that? That's the purpose for the statue. When God makes you in his image, what he's saying is, I've imbued you with purpose. Your whole purpose for being is to glorify me, is to reflect my being. And when you deny the purpose of something, you deny its betterment. Let me give you another example of this. Your car that you drive has a purpose. It was designed. It was created. It has a purpose for being. And as long as you are utilizing that car for its intended purpose, it'll work great, right? It'll get you from A to B. But if you wake up one day and you say, you know what? Who are these car manufacturers to tell me how to treat my vehicle? I've owned it for a couple years. I think I know a little bit better. You know, diesel fuel sounds better to me, so I'm going to put that in there. And, you know, they say I can't drive through the water, but you know what? I feel like it, so I'm going to do that, and I'm going to do it. If you go against the intended purpose or design of something, you will ruin it. Right? You'll ruin it. It will never live up to its potential, and you will ultimately damage it and possibly destroy it. What God is saying is that he created you and me for the highest purpose imaginable in the universe. He gave you, all of us, a job application when you were born. He says, man, I want you to glorify me. It's the highest purpose that anyone could ever have. And all of us looked at that purpose and we said, nah, I think I could do better than you, God. You know, I know you created me with intent and purpose, whatever. But you know what? I think it's better for me to live for myself than for you. I don't want to live my life to reflect your glory. I want to live for myself. And so because of that, what Ecclesiastes 3.11 is saying is that if eternity really is in your heart and you're spending all of your life trying to fill that eternal void with finite objects, you're going to spend your entire life thirsting for something that you will never be satisfied for. So I was living for myself. I was not living for the glory of God. And so because of that, I was miserable. I was miserable. God is stuck with being the most glorious being in the universe, so he must, if he loves us, he has to demand his own glory. If he didn't, he wouldn't be a loving God. If he told us to glorify anything else other than himself, he would not be a loving father to you. He would be hurting you. So God, for the joy in your life and in his own, demands his own glory. 
John 7, verse 37, Jesus says, On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, come to me and drink. Jesus doesn't say, come to me and I'll find you something to drink. I'll get you some water. He says, come to me and drink, meaning that Jesus is the source of life for your very soul. You need him. Just as your body needs water to live, your soul needs Jesus. Right? We need to glorify God. That is our purpose. I thought, all my life growing up in the church, I was like, man, glorifying God means that I have to give up a lot of stuff. It means I have to give up these things that are so much fun. I like, the truth is, is that I like, I'm attracted to sexual sin. I don't want to give it up. And I thought that God was asking me to give up pleasure in order to serve him. But now I see the truth. God was asking me to give up something that could have never satisfied me in the first place to accept the only thing that could satisfy me eternally, himself. Jesus put it this way. He says, you who hold on to your lives, you're going to lose them. may not be today, tomorrow, the next day, but eventually, whatever you're living for will let you down. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will find it. You stop living for yourself for his sake, you will find it. C.S. Lewis um, also struggled with this problem, and he wrote a, a fantastic book called Reflections on the Psalms. And in, in it, he talks much like I was talking to you guys. He said, man, like, what is God? Some sort of a, you know, weird woman up in the sky that needs someone to continuously puff up his fragile ego? And he says, no. He says this. He answers his own question of why God demands praise, why God demands that there's an entire book of the Bible, the largest book of the Bible is dedicated to praising him. He says this, I have never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside. You see what he's saying? Whenever you delight in something, it spontaneously grows up into praise. You have to say, that's awesome, right? I mean, isn't it frustrating when you see something fantastic and there's no one to share it with? Right? You, you watch a movie, you're like, man, that was a great movie, but then you, there's no one to tell, there's no one to laugh with, you're just watching it alone, it seems kind of lame. There is a reason why people go to movie theaters, right? Um, and it's not to enjoy their company, right? I don't invite people to movie theaters to be like, man, I want to enjoy your company, because I'm not going to talk to you for an hour and a half. Um, you know, if you invite people for their company to movie theaters, then I probably don't like you in movie theaters. You know, you need, you need, it's about the movie, right? The reason why you invite someone to a movie theater is because you want to enjoy something together. You want to praise corporately something worthy. That's what you're about. With C.S. Lewis, and, and let, me, let me just finish his thought so you could see this even more clearly. I think that we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but actually completes our enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. And the worthier the object, the more intense that delight would be. If it were possible for a created soul fully to appreciate, that is to love and delight in, the worthiest object of all, and simultaneously at every moment to give this delight perfect expression in praise, that soul would be in supreme joy and beatitude. And this is what heaven is. Okay? His argument is very, it's very simple, right? If we delight in praise, meaning that the more we enjoy something, the more we praise it. And the more we praise it, the more we enjoy it, right? He says, imagine for a second, you get that much pleasure in praising something simple like a sunset or the stars or a movie or a book. 
how much more pleasurable would it be to worship the creator of all these things? How much greater would it be to praise the man, the one from whom all pleasures flow? That all the, all the different things that you and I enjoy in this creation are just little tiny droplets flowing from the river of his supreme satisfaction and joy. Right? C.S. Lewis later on in his book, Weight of Glory, he says, we are all fools messing about with stupid things like drugs, alcohol, and sexuality when God intends to give us something that will overshadow all of them himself. Right? So when God is demanding this glory, he's saying, no, the reason why I'm demanding you glorify me is because I'm better than all these things. I'm greater. I'm worthy of your praise. I'm worthy of your praise. The next thing that I want to point out, because it, it is important to, to understand these, to couple these things together so you see them very clearly, is that God ultimately is love. I've already talked about this a little bit, but let me just give you guys a couple verses to understand this. Zephaniah 3, verse 17, The Lord your God in your midst, the Mighty One will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with His love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Did you know that God is so in love with you that He writes songs about you? Kind of crazy. You know, we got 150 psalms in our Bible. How many songs do you think He's written about us? Right? He's eternal. God praises and delights and you. Right? And that's a radical thing to think about, that the creator of all the heavens and the earth actually delights in you, especially if your life is anything like mine and has as much failure in it as I do. It's amazing to think that God still delights in you in spite of your faults. Romans 8, verse 31 through 32, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not along with him freely give us all things? God is for you. Always, and in all circumstances. God wants what's best for you. Always. And what's Paul's proof of this? If God did not spare his son, is there anything more difficult for God to do than to crucify his only begotten son? The answer is no. You know, I've talked to a lot of fathers about this particular verse, and usually what I'll ask them is, how many of you fathers would be willing to lay down your lives for your children? And all of them raise their hand, and I say, how many of you have something in your life that is worthy enough to lay down your child's life? No hands go up. You are so valuable in the eyes of God that he said yes to that question, that he laid down his son. Here's Paul's argument. If you are that precious in the sight of God, he loves you that much. He did the only thing in the universe that would be difficult for him, dying in your place. How can you doubt that God doesn't have your best interests in mind. If he was willing to do, go that far for you, why do you think that he's withholding pleasure from you with his commands and his desires for you to glorify him? God has done all things for your joy in his glory. Ephesians 3 verse 20, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly and abundantly above all that we ask and think, according to the power that works in us. Now this is a part of Paul's prayer, and I, I, the reason why I quote it is because a lot of times people quote this and, and they, they misquote it. And what, the reason why I say they misquote it is they look at it and they say, oh, see, like God does exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. So if you ask God for $100, he'll give you 1000 right? And so if you get fired from your job, God's got a better one for you. And if you break up with your girlfriend, he's got a better woman out there for you, right? And so that's, that's how we interpret this passage. That's not what this passage is saying. 
This passage is saying that God has to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think because you ask for stupid things, and so do I. Right? That's what he's saying. He's saying, look, if God, if you asked for right things, God wouldn't have to do above and beyond what you asked. He would just do what you asked. God has to do above and beyond what you asked because you and I ask for dumb things. Right? This is my point. A lot of times when I was praying, when I was asking God to deliver me from certain things, whether it was in the military, whatever, my physical problems, asking for a job, asking for this, asking for that, here's the ultimate question that God could turn back on you. If this doesn't happen, am I worthy? Right? If your greatest fear comes to pass, am I worthy? Or to put it another way, if God's glory comes at the cost of your greatest dream, is he worth it? When Paul's saying God does exceedingly and abundantly above all that we ask or think, it means that God does all things for his glory. But sometimes God's glory comes at the cost of what you want. Because God must show you that he is greater than you want because he is all that you need. Sometimes that comes at a cost to us. We'll ex- I'll explain that in more detail later. Let's move on. How do we glorify God? So talked a little bit about the fact that God needs to be glorified. He demands our glory, that he's worthy of our praise and worship of him and our glorification of him. How do we do it practically? The first thing is you must delight in God. You have to delight in him. God is not glorified where he is not satisfied in. This is Deuteronomy 28, verse 47. Once again, a passage that floored me. It says this, God is speaking to his people, and he's speaking to them because he's like, I'm going to bring judgment on you one day. I'm not going to tell you right now when it's going to happen, but it will happen. I'm going to bring judgment on you one day. And he gives out the scenario when he's going to give them judgment. He says, when your culture looks like this, judgment's going to come. And what's his main problem with them? This is verse 47. Because, why am I bringing this calamity upon you? Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and gladness of heart for the abundance of everything he is. Why was God upset with them? Is it because they weren't worshiping him and serving him? No, they were. It's because they weren't worshiping and serving him with what? Joy and gladness of heart. God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. When we long for him, when we desire him, that's what brings him glory. God is not glorified. He is not honored amongst people that are bitter at his laws and commandments. And look at him and say, man, I guess I, I, guess I got to or else I'm going to hell. Right? That doesn't honor God in the slightest. God is only glorified in his people when his people delight in him. When his people are speaking of his worth and his praise and his glory to other people, when they're saying, man, how could I continue to go after that when God is so much greater? Westminster Catechism, which uh, was a great catechism, for those of you guys who love catechisms, um, but, you know, the Westminster Catechism came out of the Renaissance period, and it was, it was amazing. I mean, it's, it's basically it's for new believers, kind of if you want to think of it that way. It was like a discipleship tool. First question in the Westminster Catechism, what is the chief and highest end of man? Answer, man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and fully to enjoy him forever. These people understood it. What are we supposed to do? Glorify God. How do we do it? Fully enjoy him forever. See him as our everything. Psalm 1611, you show me the path of life. In your presence is the fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. 
Psalm 36, verse 8, they are abundantly satisfied with the fullness of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your pleasures. Right? These verses need to sink in for us. We need to understand God is pleasurable. God is beautiful. God is worthy. God is the most beautiful, amazing being in the universe. But do we act like it? Do we act like it? Do I speak like that when I'm talking to people? When I look at my speech patterns, what do I spend most of my time glorifying, talking about, praising? Is it God? Do I show God his worth in my life? Am I supremely enjoying him in all things? In Isaiah 55, verse 2, Isaiah is speaking to the children of Israel, and he's talking about their sins. And he says, why do you spend money? This is, by the way, this is God speaking. Isaiah's speaking. I mean, God's speaking through Isaiah. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. God is upset with his people. Why? Because they're going to sources of pleasure that can't satisfy them. And he's saying, why don't you come to me? Don't you know I'm better? When God looks at you and me in our sin, he isn't looking at us and be like, oh gosh, they found the secret to happiness. I'm so ticked off because they're going against my word. I better get, get a hold of them. No, he's like, dude, I don't want you to do this because it's going to hurt. Don't you see it's killing you? He's a concerned father. He's trying to get you away. But just like all foolish children, we think that our parents' rules are oppressive and they're against our well-being, right? right? I remember when I was a little kid, I was at a campfire thing. I don't know. I don't remember it too well. But anyway, I was at a campfire thing with my dad, and I remember I was just obsessed with fire. You know, I thought it was so cool. And I, I went up, and I was like, man, I just love the way it danced. And I was like, man, I want to just touch it. It looks so neat. And like, I, I, I edged like closer and closer to it. My dad grabbed me, and he pulled me away from it, and he like disciplined me, and he's just like, son, you never do that again. You know, and he was yelling at me, and I was just like, you know, as a little kid, I just started crying. I was like, oh my gosh, my dad's so mean. You know, like he, he, want, he didn't want me to touch the fire because it's so awesome and he's just against my happiness. And, uh, you know, and I was, I was pretty bitter at my dad for a couple of years. I still am. No, I'm not. But, you know, like <laughs> when, I, when I think back and I'm like, oh my gosh, like my dad was concerned with my betterment and he pulled me away from something that would have killed me. God, when you look at it and you look at your life and you look at the things that you're living for, Whatever you're finding pleasure in, whether it's your family, whether it's your job, whether it's your romance, whether it's your looks, whatever it is, ultimately, if you live ultimately for these things, they will kill you. They will eat you alive. They cannot give you what they promise. And God is saying, don't spend your wages. Don't spend your glory on these things that can't bring you what you're actually seeking because it's in me. When you understand that, and when you have that as the header, as the focal point for everything that you're doing, it makes even fighting sin a delight, because you're fighting for joy. It makes everything a delight. It makes even suffering joyous. In 2 Corinthians 6, verse 10, Paul writes this, As sorrowful we are as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. In Job 13, verse 15, Job says this, Though he slay me, yet I will trust him. If you want God to look beautiful 
in your life. Not just what he gives you, but God himself to look beautiful in your life. He will look most beautiful when you are most dependent on him. And that means that God is most glorified in you in the midst of loss, not prosperity. It's when you and I are in a season like Job when everything is being taken away from us. And we say, even still, I will praise God. When everything's being ripped from you, you still look and you say, God is enough for me. I don't need these things. God is sufficient for my soul, and I will yet praise him because he is the only source of joy that will satisfy my heart. That is when Christians make God look precious to those around them. I hope we understand that as a church. Because if you don't understand that, you're going to misunderstand what I'm saying, and you're going to think, oh, so that means that if we are most, when we're most satisfied in God, he is most glorified in us, God's mission is to make our lives easy and happy. No. God's mission in your life is to glorify himself, and sometimes his glory will come most through your suffering. Come most through your suffering. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul, who's going through an immense period of suffering, in verse 16, he says, Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though our outward man is perishing, our inward man is being renewed every single day. And he says, For this light, momentary affliction is bringing about for us a far more exceeding and eternal, get this, weight of glory. We do not look at the things which are seen, for the things that are seen are transient or they're passing away, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Whatever you're going through in your life, if you look at what is seen, the things that are seen, they're transient, they're fading, they're, they're, they're dying. Everything, even your family. Everything is dying around you. There is only one being in the universe who is eternal, and he's the only one worth living for. Paul says, even though everything in my life is being taken away from me, yet I will praise God. Why? Because of the eternal weight of glory that rests in his presence. I delight, even in loss, I delight. James 1 verse 12, I love this verse. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. Blessed means happy, by the way. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Now, why is this? It seems kind of weird, doesn't it? He says, blessed, happy is the person who is tempted for when he's been approved or when he overcomes it, he will receive a crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. How does love enter into this equation? It's very simple. God is honored through our temptations to sin because when you choose him over something else, he receives glory. Meaning, if the second you became a Christian, if all sin became disgusting to you, like the second you became a Christian, you'd be like, ugh, you know, like every single time you're about to, uh, um, you know, be a glutton or get drunk or whatever, or have illicit sex, whatever, you just became violently ill and you started vomiting everywhere and you're like, oh man, this is not good. I'm not going to do it anymore, right? That wouldn't make God look beautiful. People would look at you and be like, well, yeah, you honor God, but you don't have a choice. What makes God look beautiful is when we honestly as a church say, yeah, I want those things, but I want God, get this, more. That's what makes him look beautiful. So when I talk to people, right, I, I, I don't usually spend my time making sin look evil. Because why? I'm not fooling anyone. Sin is fun. 
for a season. But God is joyous for eternity. When I honor God is when I say, yeah, I do want to do these things. That's the truth. I do want to do these things. But God is better. I say no because God is greater. And when I fail to this sin, it's because I've missed that message. And for a moment, I have believed the lie that this will satisfy me when it never has. And I must run back to God, for in him is where I find my rest. Next, his glory changes us, right? This is how enjoying God changes us. It says in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into that same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. How are you and I changed or transitioned to be like Christ? It's not through trying harder, by the way. It's through beholding his beauty. It's through beholding his beauty. Um, I don't have children yet, but I'm told that when you see your child for the first time, it's a, it's a life-changing moment. And when you see the glory that you have birthed in your children, you want to lay down everything to protect that life. The reason why I bring that up is because in our lives, we have different types of relationships that change us, right? We have relationships that are based on law, and there are relationships that are based on love. So many Christians try to change through law, and they're unsuccessful. Let me put it this way. When I'm driving on the streets, the law changes the way I want to drive pretty drastically, but it doesn't change my heart doesn't make me want to drive that way. And it always makes me see how much I could get away with before I get in trouble, right? I don't look at 55 and be like, oh, that's a speed limit. I can't go 55. I'm like, ah, five over, you know, 60. Then I won't get pulled over, right? That's how I look at the speed limit. Because I'm like, how much is the maximum I get away? If, if a cop came to me and said, you could get away with nine miles an hour, I would cruise control nine miles an hour every single time. I would always test the limits. Why? Because... I only want to do the right thing as so long as it keeps me from consequences. That's it. Legalistic relationships can't change you very much, can they? They can't change your heart. They can't change your dreams. They can't change your desires. There's a limit to what the law can ask you to do. You know what? There is no limit to what love can ask you to do. There are things that my boss could ask me to do, and if it got too severe, I would say no, and I'd be out. There's no limit to what my wife can ask me to do, though, because I love her. I have changed goals, aspirations, dreams for our relationship, and you know what? It's joyous because I love her. God demands your heart. How do you change your heart? By beholding glory. Your heart must be captured by a greater beauty than what you have in this earth. If you can't do that, you won't change. You can change outwardly, but you can't change inwardly. You can't change that root, that root of pride and arrogance that has sunk you your whole life. Last two points. We glorify God by obeying him. Uh, in Hebrews 11, verse 24 to 27, it says, By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. For he looked to the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. 
it's, I don't have time to go into this as much as I wanted to, but it's a tragedy that myself included, we come to God as if he is a self-help program, meaning that we uh, approach God as if he is there and his rules and laws are there to make your life better. And you think that, oh man, well, like, you know, God is out for my betterment, so therefore I will follow his commands as so long as they better me. And that's why a lot of people in our culture, myself included, we follow the commands of God as so long as they make sense to us. And we ask, we question them, don't we? Say, well, you know, this was said back in the day and it no longer applies, you know? I mean, it's kind of a ridiculous law, you know? Like, God doesn't expect me to follow this now, does he? You know, like, and we're like, oh, okay, but I'm still a Christian because I follow all these other... No, 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 obedience comes when you follow when you don't understand. If you only follow someone when you do understand them, it's not obedience, it's convenience, Right? You honor God when you obey him willingly. Moses had to give up everything to follow God. The commandments of God did not make his life better. The commandments of God made him lose everything. He was the prince of Egypt, and he said he left being a prince to be a slave, and he counted it what? As better. If God is glorified in this decision, I gladly give up my throne. I gladly give up all the riches of Egypt and all the, all the praise and all the adulation that I had, and I go and I serve God in humility as a slave. Because as a prince, I have nothing eternal, but as a slave, I have everything eternal. Right? That's how Moses honored God with his life. When we come at God with these frivolous questions, like, God, is it okay if I do this as so long as it doesn't hurt anyone? God, is it okay if I drink, if I get drunk, but I don't hurt anyone? I do it in a safe environment. I don't get addicted. God, is it okay if I use this, this substance, if I use, do it safely, and I'm not, I'm not doing it illegally, and I'm, I'm, I'm in my house, and it's not hurting anybody? Is it okay if I have a relationship with someone who's not a Christian? If, you know, they love me, and they cherish me, and we have a greater relationship, newsflash, none of these things are for God's glory. You're thinking about your benefit on this earth. When you come down to it, and you say, you know what, I don't understand this command, and you know what, it's going to cost me, but God is more worthy Giving this up will make my life richer than it ever has been. Relationships are not about you. They're about God. Being married is not about you. It's about God. Having good health is not about you. It's about God. It's about his glory. It's about in everything you do, whether you eat or drink, doing everything for the glory of God. Right? That's what it's about. When you come up with all these pragmatic approaches to pursuing the Lord, what you're essentially saying to God is, make sense to me, then I follow. I think about when I was a kid. I was a, I was a uh, kind of a snot of a kid. I was a turd. My parents would tell you. But as a kid, I used to do this weird thing where I used to run away from my parents, and I used to hide in a clothing rack, right? Um, and they were, like, freaking out. And I would, like, laugh. I'd be in there, ha, and they'd be all freaking out. I'd be like, ha, they think I'm gone. And, you know, eventually they got a leash. They put that on me. <laughs> and, uh, but I figured out how to take off the leash. So, joke's on them. So, I, I disengaged the leash, and I was still hiding. And my parents, every single time, they're like, why can't you just do what we ask you to do? And I'm like, why do I have to stay with you? And they're like, because we don't want you to get taken. I'm like, why is that important? And I would do what all little kids do. Why, 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 why? And eventually, they would say, because I said so. And I'm like, well, oh, man, my parents, you know, they, they don't have a good answer. That's why they're saying, because I said so. You know, they just, they're not ready to talk to me, and I got all frustrated and bitter at them. But now I'm an adult, and I look back, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, like, I, I get it. This is what my parents were saying to me when they're saying, because I said so. They're saying, why can't you just do what I asked because I'm the one who asked it? Isn't it enough that you love me, that you could just do what I ask? 
Why, why does everything have to be about you? Can't you do something for me? That was what, because I said so, man. Right, whenever I questioned my parents, I was stabbing them in the heart because what I was saying is, I don't believe that you have my betterment in mind. Right? I don't believe it. And so I'm going to ask you why. You've got to prove yourself to me. And my parents could look at me and be like, what have I done to make you think that I'm out for your harm? Why can't you just do it because I said so? Right? You say the same thing to God. Why does God have to give you a reason for what he's asked you to do? Is he worthy or not? Is he worthy to follow or is he not? If he's not worthy, then stop messing around with it. Because it probably doesn't matter. But if God is worthy, you do what he says because he's the one who said it. Because he's worthy. Because he's glorious. That's what honors him. Not when we have a reason. Ephesians 5, verse 17, Paul says, Do not be drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. I love that passage because he doesn't say, Don't be drunk with wine because it's bad for your liver. Don't be drunk with wine because you're going to do dumb things when you're drunk. Don't be drunk with wine because you ruin your relationships. He says, Don't be drunk with wine because why? It's dissipation, it's emptiness, but what? Be filled with the Spirit. Follow God. What's his argument? Don't be drunk with wine because it's not following God. It's that simple, right? When we're arguing with people, we need to understand it's an issue between them and God. If I convince someone to do the right thing because it's convenient for them, they're not honoring God. They're honoring their own self. We have to be people who are obedient to the Lord because he's the Lord. Ephesians 5, verse 1 through 2, this is the final way that we glorify God. Well, there's more, but these are the main ones. We reflect God, Ephesians 5, 1 through 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also loved us and has given himself for us an offering and sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Meaning, the Bible says that God is love. The number one way for you to reflect God is to love. That's what he wants. Now, that's a huge, deep topic that I would like to get into, but I'm already over time, so I'm not going to. But... Read it on your own time. I encourage you. The Bible is literally filled with love. Right? In our culture, we throw around the word love in a very frivolous way to the extent that pretty much no one knows what it means. The Bible defines love through the actions and through the character of God. If you want to reflect God's love, don't reflect what your culture says about love. Reflect what God says about love. And the only way to figure that out is to get into his word. That's all I'll say for now. The last little quote that I'm going to share with you guys because I think it's awesome. The beautiful thing about it is, is that we as people, as human beings, we rejected the glory of God and we decided to glorify ourselves. And in so doing, we made ourselves far more dull and unglorious. Inglorious. Um, the example that God has given us in this world that I believe is most powerful is the, the distinction between the sun and the moon. The moon has no glory in itself. It can only reflect the glory of the sun. And when the moon is in the right position and it's correctly reflecting all of the sun's glory and brilliance, it is very bright and very beautiful. But when the moon is covered by the world, the moon gives off no brightness. It's just a black spot in your sky. God designed us to be glorious because we're reflecting the ultimate glory in the universe. And that's a frightening thing to understand, how beautiful and glorious you and I will become when we fully come in line with God and stop clouding ourselves with the world. C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory, he said this, It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, 
to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw them now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one of these destinations. It is in light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendship, friendships, love, play, politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are all mortal, and their life is to ours as that of a gnat. But it is immortals whom you joke with, work with, marry, snub, exploit, immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. We were designed to be glorious. And every single day, you and I are helping each other either to greater reflection of God's glory or greater dejection of God's glory. This is how you should treat those around you, understanding how God designed them and how God designed you. Do you understand your own potential for glory? Do you understand what God wants to raise you up to be, not to make you something, but to make himself more as a result of what people see you. How do we understand the brightness of the sun at night? By seeing its reflection in the moon. How do people understand God's glory in this world apart from God? By looking at you. And the more you reflect him, the more glorious you become. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much. We thank you so much for your amazing beauty and majesty. Lord, we pray and we ask that every day we would be more in awe of who you are that we would come face to face with this reality and that we would see that you are far better than everything else that we're holding on to. God, if there's anyone in here, myself included, I even pray for myself. Like When we have these things in our lives that we are holding in front of you, God, and we're saying these are more important, we're living for them, whether it is family, career, whether there are sins in our life that we're holding on to with both hands and we're unwilling to let them go because we don't trust by faith that you are better. Lord, help us to give these things up. Help us to come after you. Lord, help us to be more and more thankful for you and to praise you with every ounce of our breath. We love you and in your name, amen.